psychos and psychettes, and welcome to another episode of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that is a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live here. I, of course, am your host, Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and I'm here once again to talk about the movies that I watched this week in my October 31 for 31 marathon, where I watch one horror movie a day for the entire month of October. So this week, I checked out a pretty wide variety of sinful cinematic offerings, including some classic scary spider action, a wildly experimental modern movie, a a blockbuster indie from this very year, and one weird-ass Japanese movie from the 2000s, among others. So sit tight as I review and discuss all seven of my films for this week. And in the meantime, do me a favor, give me a follow on Instagram. I'm Sir Ian Dangerous. And of course, check out the Tiki Creeps at tikicreeps.com and 414beg on Instagram. They did my music and sound for the show, respectively, so please give them some love. And of course, give me some love too. Like, share, subscribe, review, all that good social media stuff. It helps me out immensely, so please, please don't forget to do that. You know how it works. The more engagement I get, the more Spotify or whoever recommends me in their algorithm. You know, all that boring business stuff but look it helps the show and it makes me feel good so help out your uncle frank y'all come on so on to the show as always i am following my yearly rules to pick which horror movies i watch and as a refresher in case for some reason you're coming in on this episode and you don't know those rules are number one i cannot watch any film that i've seen in the last five years number two at least Three of the movies that I watch this year must be in another language besides English. Number three, I have to watch at least two films from every decade, starting with the 40s and before, all the way up till now. So 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, aughts, and 20s as well. So (laughs) I used to do just one from every decade, but that was just too easy. So now I made it harder for myself, and it's actually kind of fun. Rule number four, multiple films from the same franchise count as one movie. Hasn't been a problem yet because I've just avoided doing multiple movies from one franchise. But stick around. I'm hoping to do more uh, franchise die deep dives in the future. So I'd, l- I'd love to do that. Number five, rule number five, they must be horror movies. Duh. But of course, I have to defend them if they're on the fringe. They might be considered something other than horror. Why do I consider them horror So that is a rule. And finally, this year, the special bonus rule is I've got to watch at least one movie that I can relate to punk rock music from every decade. How the hell am I going to do that before punk rock was even invented? Well, stick around. I'm going to flail around and try to relate it to punk rock in some way because punk rock's our theme this year. Punk rock's great. Uh, Even though it it might be a dead genre, shut up, punk lives forever forever. We're going to talk about it at some point on this show. I hope. We'll wait and see. Maybe I can relate it to a horror movie. Maybe I can't. Stick around and find out. So a quick recap for this year. In week one, I watched Curse of the Werewolf from 1961. I watched The Wolfman, the Benicio Del Toro one from 2010. The director's cut specifically. 
I watched Return of the Living Dead, number three, from 1993. I watched the Dunwich Horror from 1970. Alone in the Dark, not the video game one, the one from 1982 about psychos surrounding a psychologist's house. I watched uh, The Conjuring Part 2 from 2016, and I watched Infinity Pool by Brandon Cronenberg from 2020 three from this year that was a really good one check that one out for sure infinity pool is great really gets under your skin so as i said i am supposed to be doing that theme of punk rock as it relates to horror movies this year and i i'm off to a rough start uh return of the living dead three and alone in the dark are the only two i've been able to tie punk rock to in some way and i got a lot of decades left to cover I still have to watch some films that aren't in English. I haven't watched any yet. Uh, Everything's been in English so far. I'm missing several decades worth of films. I got a lot of ground to cover, work to do, and bloody murders to watch. So will this year be the year I can't fulfill all my goals? I guess we'll find out. So let's talk about what I watched this week. Of course, like I said, hit me up on Instagram or in the comments of your podcast app. and Let me know if I'm way off base on my opinions for the show, or if you think I'm spot on or somewhere in between, just let me know what you think of the show. Let me know if I found an awesome film that you love, that you never heard of, that you're glad to have seen, so on and so forth. Give me some feedback. And of course, Sir Ian Dangerous on Instagram is where to hit me up there. So let's get going, starting with the eighth movie of 2023 arachnophobia from 1990 you can currently check it out uh streaming on tubi you can rent it on amazon google youtube apple etc 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 and really what a what a lovely little movie arachnophobia is it's just it's the warm fuzzies for me so it's coming at the end like the tail end of the very Spielbergian 80s, by the point at which the term Spielbergian had become a term you, you could really understand. You, could, you, could, you knew what that meant. It was a cinematic touchstone which indicated accessible fare with a sense of wide-eyed wonder, a bit of grounded realism in his portrayal of family units where the, the dysfunction was just part of a loving, loving family. It was, a, it was a tendency to push the boundaries of the fantastic into the realm of fear and horror, but never so much that it was gruesome aside from, you know, maybe a mum shiva, a mum shiva tearing a heart out or something like that. But it was, it was just enough to make a generation of viewers feel like they had been on a particularly hair raising roller coaster ride. And then they came out of the side of laughing, excited, a little nervous, but also maybe having felt something meaningful. He was creating a filmic culture that was just his own. And his collaborators and surrogates were very much on board with that vision because Lord knows Spielberg in the 80s was a box office blockbuster machine. His Jaws and then his buddy George Lucas's Star Wars, of course, are considered the first real summer blockbuster, something which now has become standard business practice for the studio system. And Spielberg came back to the well over and over with massive hits like his Indiana Jones franchise, the insane success of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and then his many producing and executive producing credits on films 
that seemed to share his particular touch and feel, such as the Back to the Future trilogy, the Goonies, Poltergeist, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, Batteries Not Included, Young Sherlock Holmes. Uh, now, some of those were made by his production company, Amblin Entertainment, which he had started with fellow Hollywood producers, Kathleen Kennedy, and her husband, Frank Marshall. Now, F Marshall had never directed before, but he had produced quite a few movies, most with Spielberg and Kennedy, and many of which had become big successes or are now considered classics. But he wanted to sit in the director's chair for once, and so he found himself helming Arachnophobia in 1990 for Amblin Entertainment and the new Hollywood Pictures, a new Disney subsidiary that would produce fare for a slightly older audience than Disney's usual kitty market, and which would last as a major player for a, about 10 years, ultimately becoming most famous for movies like Tombstone, The Santa Claus, Crimson Tide, The Rock, and uh, The Sixth Sense, actually, was their most successful movie. And Arachnophobia was intended to be a PG-13 movie, scarier than something like E.T., but still fun for the whole family, unlike PG-13 horror today, which, which tries to go as far as it can to the edge of R without losing that extra teenage dollar. So Spielberg, Marshall, and Kennedy were no strangers to PG-13, with Raiders of the Lost Ark and Gremlins both being touted as the reason the rating was created and which were directed and or executive produced by Spielberg, respectively, and which were produced by Amblin. So the PG-13 rating kind of came from the work of Spielberg, and it was still being used all over the board at that point by the MPAA. It's still somewhat of an ambiguous rating, with both ends of its tolerance zone being somewhat arbitrary as, as to however the board members are feeling on the day of rating. But arachnophobia here feels like a classic 80s PG-13. It's, it's, it's not afraid to shy away from showing like a desiccated corpse or to have children in mortal peril, but it's also not really showing anything particularly gory or doesn't really have any like really foul language. And while there is a scene of a teenage girl in a shower, it's all suggestive and played more as a gag with a spider as opposed to any real exploitative titillation, which is basically all to say that arachnophobia is a movie very much of its time. It feels so much like that period of teenage movies. It's, it's charming. It's well-written. All the actors are having a blast, and you know exactly what their role and purpose is. And Marshall himself is bending over backwards to give you the willies with all his spider gags while still letting you laugh about the whole thing on the regular. He said that he wanted the film to be kind of like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, but Really, this film is far more fun than Hitchie's more grim avian adventure. While, while being very much of its late 80s, early 90s Spielbergian time and tone, Arachnophobia is still a classic evil critters movie, like The Birds, where some mundane animal, which we may get the willies from, you know, maybe it's the birds, maybe it's something more freaky, it's now transformed somehow into a life-threatening terror. And I mean, this is coming after a whole trend of this kind of thing in the, in the 70s and, and early 80s with animals like, uh, oh, let, I don't know, let's see, uh, slugs, frogs, bears, 
uh, bees, mosquitoes, alligators, ants, pigs, rats, etc., etc., all of them. They're all getting their day to kill off those pesky humans in ways that would make the audiences squeal with squirmy discomfort. So spiders, certainly not out of the box uh, for this kind of thing. It's seeing as being an arachnophobe is not actually an uncommon thing. And it's, it's not too unrealistic either. Spider bites do kill people every year, kind of like with Spielberg's Jaws, the way that spiders are portrayed in arachnophobia is not exactly zoologically accurate, but it's still not out of the realm of possibility. But that's, that's kind of the point after all, right? And Marshall and company gleefully play up all of our worst spider fears. So starting off, you've got Julian Sands. Rest in peace, Julian Sands. In the Venezuelan jungle, finding a new resistant to bug spray and highly venomous species of massive spider. Yeah, that checks all the boxes, right? Of course, one big daddy of this breed hitches a ride back to the States and finds itself in the lovely countryside of Cambria, California, masquerading as a fictional town they called Kanaima. All right. Uh, close enough, a nice yuppie couple and their kids move into this little rural town about the same time the big bad spider daddy moves into their barn and begins popping out little ugly spiderlings. And then he starts taking over the town. Now, the spider breed is highly deadly, Black tarantula, you see. And although most of the spider babies are played by a fairly harmless but ugly as sin New Zealand breed of spider, in the movie, one bite will kill a full adult human in seconds. If that doesn't give you the spider willies, then you are immune to spider fear. So, of course, we have all of the most ideally terrifying and phobia-centric scenes of these damn little bastards nipping people in the most shutter-inducing ways. They're dropping out of a lampshade as you go to switch off the light. They're slowly descending from the ceiling onto your shoulder. They're hiding in your shoes. Or in the most, oh, fuck no, moment of the movie, they're landing on your face in the shower. <laughs> um, apparently, in real life, the spider in that scene was supposed to jump onto the actress's shoulder in the spider. The spider was supposed to jump from the, uh, the edge of the, sho uh, the shower onto her shoulder. But Theo Schwartz, uh, the actress who I now believe to have ovaries of solid fucking steel, she took that spider right on the forehead and nose, and she barely even reacted as it slid down her face. Apparently at the time, she was thinking, oh, this will look great as it happened. Uh, uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, is commitment and talent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually funny how many stories from the set there are of how much everyone loved these little spider actors and how much care was taken to keep them safe and unharmed. Uh, John Goodman, who is absolutely legendary in this movie as a wacky exterminator and who has some of the most spider intensive scenes, even said that he personally never once got the willies from him. He even liked his little buddies. Uh, Jeff Daniels, who plays the spider averse dad of the yuppie family, had a lot more spidery scenes and even got to interact with the star of the show, a fucking huge bird-eating tarantula that they got to play the main daddy general spider and who they apparently named Big Bob after director and friend of the set Robert Zemeckis. So another fun little bit of trivia actually is that the mechanical stand-in 
for Big Bob for this movie was made by none other than Jamie Heineman of Mythbusters fame. It was his first ever major special effects job, and the, the damn thing looks amazing. And by that, I mean it's goddamn terrifying. And, and that, that's really how I qualify this as a horror movie, not as like a family comedy or an adventure or something like that. I don't think it's a stretch to say that even though it's PG-13 and a soft Spielbergian late 80s, early 90s PG-13 at that, it's still a movie that, like I said, it's out to exploit your fear of creepy crawlies. And it does it so well with such a winking glee that it's hard not to just have a fucking blast getting terrified and unnerved by this movie. It sits right in that comfort movie category of safe, fun entertainment horror where the filmmakers and everyone in the movie is obviously having a great time. And as long as you have a bit of a dark sense of humor and a willingness to face some very common fears that most of us have, like, you know, a fear of a giant eight-legged arachnid sitting on your face and hissing. Ugh, uh, uh. Yeah, this movie's a blast and it's a damn good time at the popcorn cinema. So hooray, arachnophobia. That one was a nice, that was a warm comfort movie for me this year. But then I moved on to movie number nine of this year, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness from 1986. You can rent it on Alamo. Uh, It's also on Google, YouTube, and Spectrum to rent if you want to spend the money for this. Uh, it It is a... How do I even put this? It's a something. It was shot on 16 millimeter. Uh, it was from 1986. It was written by a 17 year old named Tim Ritter. And it's kind of like a fever dream of absolutely horrible acting, God awful direction, shockingly over the top violence and some of the most hilariously bad scenes you've ever seen outside of a Tommy Wiseau marathon. Um, By comparison, Wiseau's The Room is like the fucking Godfather. I would summarize the story for this movie, but there are so many plot holes and leaps in what passes as logic that I'll, I'll just say that it's about a guy whose wife dumps him and he goes batshit insane becoming obsessed with the kids' game Truth or Dare, and then he goes on a killing spree. Uh, I truly can't tell if the movie knows it's as bad as it is because it's all over the place. Some moments are obviously played for campy laughs and to be intentionally over the top, like when he runs over a mother and her baby carriage or when he steps out of a car and starts arming up with a comically ridiculous amount of weapons, including a medieval mace, which he promptly embeds in the skull of a a complaining Karen who's yammering at him about how he's run over her garbage cans. Um, But conversely, some scenes are played so seriously and earnestly for so long, but so amateurishly and so cringe-inducing in their awkwardness that you have to wonder if this is just a horror version of The Room. And a lot like that god-awful movie, Truth or Dare, does have its supporters. I was recommended this movie by my friend Nathan, who says he shows it to people all the time. And even people such as Elijah Wood, apparently he apparently saw it when he was a child and it made him love horror 
according to him. But he's come forward to say he thinks it's a hidden gem. Um, let me be clear. It is most definitely not a hidden gem. If you like anything resembling a comprehension of how to write, shoot, edit, or act in a film, it's, I mean, it is great for those who love to watch truly awful garbage cinema, Z-grade cinema. And I know there's a lot of people out there like that. And if you like to watch people absolutely fail at acting and delivering a line, or you like to wait an atrociously long time for a scene to end because they decided to, let's say, film a man leaving a house and instead of cutting into the scene to give us the impression of him leaving angrily and driving away, they decide to leave the camera in the doorway to watch the actor as he's leaving desperately try to over-emote while he walks all the way to his car, which is out of frame, so we have to like wait and hear him get in, start the car, take a second to put it in gear, back down the driveway, and then back into frame, and then take a second to put the car back into gear, and then peel out angrily. If you like that kind of stuff, this is for you. And th that's a minor grievance. Some of these scenes are so dragged out with such god-awful dialogue and delivery that it is a miracle the crew didn't fall asleep while filming. Now, look, that being said, as much as I obviously think that this movie is a steaming pile of crap, I do want to say some positive things about it. For instance, there's definitely an attempt here at being much bigger than they had the talent or ability to pull off. There are some truly hair-raising and wildly dangerous real car stunts in this movie that are obviously filmed on public roads and likely done on the spur of the moment. Uh, there are some explosions that are filmed terribly, but they're pretty large considering their budget and skill level. They were obviously going for a Henenlotter-esque level of sleaze and gore with lots of nudity and blood, but without Hennen Lauder's technique or even his admittedly questionable aptitude for filmmaking. And since this year, punk rock is the theme, I do have to commend the DIY nature of this movie. Tim Ritter was young when he got this movie made. As I said, he was 17 when he started working on it and he finished it at 18. And while it certainly has a lot of the feel of a teenage boy's idea of logic and an immature worldview there's no denying that he really shot the moon with a lot of his ideas even though a lot of it is a mishmash of other better movies such as the killer ultimately wearing a mask to hide his disfigured face i mean he, look he does have a lot of energy to spare here as a writer especially as the movie goes on into its more entertaining and more ludicrous second half so I just I don't think it's fair that I'm taking this movie as seriously as I as I am at the beginning of this review. I, I love me my schlock and camp horror, and a good bad movie just hits different if you're in the right mood for it. So, I mean, for example, I think if I were to compare this to my own experience growing up, I watched Ricky O, the story of Ricky, when I was young, and it is probably one of my favorite bad movies ever. That being said, Ricky O is a vastly superior movie to Truth or Dare. It's just, it's just arbitrarily a better-made movie. But look, I've seen it a billion times. I can quote the whole thing. And, and Truth or Dare, I don't think is anywhere near as fun or over-the-top 
But I could see if you saw this movie at an impressionable age and or, or you could appreciate its ridiculously awful charm, there would be a lot here to laugh at and be entertained by. The absolute goofy overacting of John Brace in the lead or the, the zero to killing babies level of violence or the fucking terrible synth score that will shockingly get stuck in your head for days. There is something to it that is watchable in that like car crash level of dumpster fire kind of way. At the end of the day, there is an earnestness to truth or dare that I can't deny. And that as far as I can tell is really the best reason to check it out. And Lord knows people have checked it out. It, ha it does have a cult following. It spawned about four sequels somehow, but good God, if you don't have a taste for truly Z grade awful films, then please avoid truth or dare at all costs. Moving on to number 10, Skinamarink from 2022, currently streaming on Hulu. Um, boy, you know, I talk about a 180, but speaking in a way of movies that you have to have a taste to enjoy, we have last year's Skinamarink, a micro-budget Canadian film from new director Kyle Edward Ball, shot in the house that Ball himself grew up in in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, this movie certainly garnered its share of buzz when it debuted, with some critics calling it the scariest film ever made. Now, conversely, it has some of the most wildly disparate reviews you'll ever see from users on Metacritic, with some calling it a classic and others calling it steaming hot garbage. Uh, I spoke with Alok Mishra, producer of the movie 1BR. Check it out, streaming right now. Uh, I interviewed him about that movie back in season three. He called Skinamarink this year. He told me it was the worst horror film he'd ever seen. Um, I, <laughs> I tried to watch this movie first with 414 Big, my sound guy, um, and we couldn't get through 20 minutes of this movie. Now, to be fair, that night we were in the mood for a bit more raucous horror to watch and kind of have fun with, and that is absolutely not what Skinamarink is. Uh, Skinamarink is best described as being anti-ASMR, the movie. Um, I also joked with 414 Beg that it, called be, it could be called Film Grain, the movie, because the whole thing is shot on digital in near darkness, and there is just pervasive grain of all sizes and tones throughout the one hour and 40 minute runtime. So much so in some particularly dark scenes, you're just sitting there for literally minutes, squinting at the screen, trying to discern shapes or forms or anything really in the chaotic spatter of spotty nothingness. But kind of like with the ASMR videos you see on YouTube, Skinamarink isn't as concerned with narrative as it is with creating a feeling of near out-of-body frisson. But unlike those feelings of pleasurable goosebumps, Skinamarink exists to create an uncanny experience that plums some of the most basic and fundamental fears and ones that are rarely accessed by traditional horror films. 
Calling Skinnamarink traditional anything would be fundamentally wrong, as it is, I think. One of the most mainstream examples of truly experimental horror that we've seen in a long time. It operates the way that a lot of online horror shorts work. Think like the original Slenderman or some of the creepy pastas that are floating around. Um, Skinnamarink was even based on some of these online communal horror experiences, one called Heck in particular, with the filmmaker of Skinnamarink, Ball, recreating his YouTube channel's viewers' nightmares in short videos and then posting them. Uh, He actually took one of his own childhood nightmares of being alone in a dark house with a monster lurking somewhere in the darkness, and he translated it into Skinnamarink. What he did additionally, however, was shoot and edit it in such a way that it feels dreamlike, liminal, almost soporific, uh, absolutely glacially paced for most of its runtime and with almost no shots of its characters or what is happening beyond some point of view angles and some still shots. It feels like a fuzzy memory of being a scared child awake when maybe you shouldn't be. And for those who it works for, it has the potential to dredge up hidden, strange feelings that you would rarely otherwise experience as an adult. It truly feels like the worst sort of dream where you can't help but do something you don't want to do and where you're small and helpless and can't wake up. This movie, in a nutshell, is about two children who find that their house one day has no doors or windows. Their parents have gone missing, and the lights start to go out. So they hunker down in the living room and watch old cartoons until the darkness starts speaking to them, and it knows their names. And I think this movie works best on people who really can connect to that feeling of being the small child alone in your house late at night. Everything is soft and quiet. Nothing quite feels real. You can hear the pipes creaking or the soft sound of breathing from the other bedrooms. There's maybe a hum coming from somewhere that you didn't realize was there, but you can only hear that at night because everything else is so quiet. It it would feel like another world and you were small and unsure and didn't want to make any noise to break the spell. That feeling is this movie. It is Skinnamarink. And I can see how people who were unaware of what this movie is could absolutely fucking hate having to sit through nearly two hours of that. I am so glad I came back to this movie and didn't just give up after the first attempt where I turned it off after 20 minutes. Uh, I have talked to friends since then who were truly, deeply disturbed, almost hurt by this movie, as if it went deep inside them and touched a place that nothing else in horror really has. Um, Honestly, for me, it didn't hit me quite that hard, nor do I feel that it's a completely successful experiment. I think it's perhaps a bit too long. Uh, It's an experiment with a narrative that could have been accomplished in two-thirds of the time or less, and it might have been more consumable to the average viewer in that form. I don't know that the added length gives it that much more, but 
I also know if I, I don't know if I want to put that out there to new viewers because part of the horror is just not knowing where or when the feelings are over, being stuck in that moment. And going longer might make that more excruciating in a way that satisfies the filmmaker's intent. But I do feel like Skinamarink is essential viewing for any horror aficionado with an open mind. It is truly a unique and original experience and an experience that is perhaps, it's, it's better to think about it as an experience than as a movie. Um, if you watch it, I recommend being alone in a dark room with headphones on and uh, <laughs> not being too sleepy. Uh, you don't want to fall asleep to this, I don't think. It's, uh, <laughs> it's going to mess up your dreams. It's, it's obtuse. It's slow as molasses. It's alien. It's atmospheric. It's off-putting. But it is also one of the most thought-provoking and stunning pieces of horror media that I've ever seen. Um, there's a good chance you will absolutely hate it there's also a good chance it might absolutely scar your soul the way that only the best horror can do. So that was Skinamarink. And number 11, bit of change of pace, Uzumaki from Japan in 2002. Uh, you can rent it uh, it's on Amazon. It's streaming on Prime, actually. If you want to just stream it on Prime, you can check it out there. Uh, Uzumaki is a film based on the manga of the same name by the greatest ho modern horror mangaka still working, Junji Ito. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, then it's very worth your time to look up his work if you're a horror fan because he has pretty much dominated the Japanese horror scene since the late 80s and early 90s and is finally starting to be recognized here in the West as he recently became the first manga creator to win an Eisner Award for Best Writer Slash Artist. Although that really kind of says more about the Eisners than it does about him. But I digress. Uh, Junji Ito has a number of all-time great works like Tomie about an immortal high school girl who drives her lovers to kill her over and over and over again. Uh, Gyo about uh, <laughs> fish with mechanical legs that take over Tokyo. J just trust me, it is actually more disturbing than it sounds. Um, I know it sounds like Shark Sharknado Tokyo Drift, but trust me, it's actually pretty disturbing and weird. Uh, and of course, Uzumaki, which is arguably his most famous work, which is about a small town being destroyed from within by a strange supernatural curse of spirals. Uh, Uzumaki translates to spiral in Japanese. And interestingly enough, in Japanese anime and manga, the spiral is typically a cute or funny symbol associated with cuteness or warmth, the, the sort of thing that is used uh, on happy or kind characters. Uh, the spiral is also, outside of its use in Japanese media, a universally recognized pattern, one that is both philosophically and mathematically important, and it can represent infinity, pattern growth or shrinking. It can define art, such as the use of the golden rule or golden spiral. It's present in thousands of natural phenomena, such as pine cones, snails, the movement of water in a whirlpool or, or wind in a tornado, the spinning of galaxies. And it's one of the most common doodles in a school notebook. I'm sure you all can agree. I, I'm sure we can all think of spirals 
that we see all the time, every day, or rather if we think about how often we see something that could have to do with a spiral pattern, we realize that they are indeed everywhere we look. So Ido crafted a story where the villagers in this small town become increasingly obsessed with and ultimately overpowered by these spirals, which sounds pretty abstract, I know, as a concept, but Ido presents it in a mix between the logic of Japanese superstition and religion and the atmosphere and philosophy of H.P. Lovecraft, who is one of Ido's self-professed inspirations. The spiral patterns grow from their ordinary places of discovery into other more macabre places, almost like a fungus or a disease or like spiritual decay. They accentuate negative human emotions like pride or obsession or anger, but also they're ebbing and flowing even into the landscape and the existence of the town itself. Um, so Ido famously doesn't pre-script his stories. And while I find that sometimes this lack of a path to follow means his stories can kind of ramble and lose focus, Uzumaki mostly avoids this trope, although it does, as a story, take some weird, sharp left turns into its arcs, and often it leaves plot threads hanging or concepts unfulfilled. But in the manga, that works better to make the reader uncomfortable and unsure. It gives a sensation of unpredictability, which can be very effective in horror. Characters will suddenly die or have something horrible happen to them, and it feels almost random, which makes progressing with the story feel unsafe. And many of the most iconic images in Ito's career spring from sudden moments of cosmic body horror, particularly in Uzumaki. One of the most famous images of his is the girl, the image of the girl standing calmly with an, a blank expression, except for the naked eyeball on her left cheek, completely exposed, carefully balanced on the edge of a massive gaping hole which spirals into nothingness on the left side of her face. Now, this image and many other incredible and uncanny images which, which pop up in the Uzumaki manga are sadly not recreated in the movie adaptation of Uzumaki. And in fact, the movie as a whole is a pretty pale imitation of the skin-crawling horror that you can find in the manga. I mean... I mean, to be fair, the filmmakers had an uphill battle to begin with. Like I've said about Lovecraft, Ito is really fucking hard to adapt into film. Unlike Lovecraft, he's already given filmmakers a visual medium and a language that they can use. But even then, to translate some of his art into movement is difficult because some of it is so abstract and uncanny. His stories are also not entirely played naturally either. Uh, human interactions can sometimes feel surreal or off somehow. And in film, that can become wooden or campy really quickly. And then plus, Uzumaki, the movie, was made in 2002, which, as anyone can tell you who has seen films from that era, especially the ones without a big Hollywood budget and access to cutting-edge digital effects technology, the special effects can be a bit goony, and attempts at big effects-driven moments can look like rubbery digital shit by modern standards. And sadly, the film really does falter on all of these levels. Uh, it's directed by Higuchinsky, the alias of Akihiro Higuchi, who didn't really do a whole lot before 
or after this project, aside from some TV and one other Ito adaptation. And here he's really, he's just all over the place tonally and pacing wise. Sometimes he slows things down to a crawl when it's not necessary. Sometimes he goes at such a breakneck pace, we lose track of what exactly the point is and what we're doing. Um, other times he spends a long time with characters looking at something and reacting, but he never shows it to us to the point where we just lose interest in what it might be only to then show us for it to be too late for it really to shock or surprise. So while there are some effective moments of tension building, the payoffs are rarely worth it. And the rhythm of the film just feels off. And, and not in the kind of way that Ito's manga works where the pacing is capricious in service of making the reader feel unsafe or unsure. It's done to a point in the film where it feels amateurish and even a bit like a mistake on the filmmaker's part. Um, so I did, I tried to self-analyze here a bit when watching the movie version of Uzumaki because maybe perhaps I was missing something culturally or aesthetically specific about the movie. Like, I didn't have some of the reference points or fundamental understandings about Japanese filmic media to get the way this movie is made. But I mean, really, I've seen so many Japanese movies and shows and other horror films from this era that even if I give Uzumaki a break for not being made for my Western eyes, it still fails on a number of levels. It's just in simple filmmaking terms. It's just not a great movie. The, the atmosphere is there in parts. It certainly has great moments of real body horror and cosmic dread. And there are a number of scenes I can res unreservedly say are just good horror. But it counteracts that with some really unforgivably clumsy scenes, some cheesy acting, and some moments that should be as iconic as they are in the manga, but that they fall way short due to how they're handled in the film. And also, the ending is just dog shit, which isn't too surprising seeing as how the film was being made at the same time as the manga. And in fact, the movie was finished before Ito had even gotten to the climactic moments of the book. That being said, I, I don't know how they could have done what Ito does in the manga for the ending. So maybe it's for the best, but they certainly didn't come up with anything better. Um, I think if I'd seen this at the time in 2002, when it came out, it might've made a better impression on me. But now, sadly, I feel like Uzumaki is a relic of the time and era it came out, both because of the haphazard directing and the deeply questionable special effects. It, it's definitely good for a watch as a curio or if you're particularly into 2000s Japanese horror and want something from that era new and unique. Um, but unless you're scared by Windows 95 spiral screensavers chasing a young girl around a small town or teenagers unconvincingly turning into snails or you can sit through some of the most stilted dialogue heard this side of a bad Ultraman cartoon, then maybe give... Uzumaki a past. You know, just, you know what? Just go read the manga. So up next at number 12 on our list this week is the hideous sun demon from 1958. 
Uh, it is currently streaming on Tubi and Pluto. You can rent it on Amazon, and you can also rent the Rift Tracks version of this movie on Amazon as well. Oh, the hideous sun demon. Uh, it, it comes from that beautiful era of horrible B-movie goodness that is the 50s, which gave us such luminary bad cinema as the Beast of Yucca Flats, uh, Creature with the Atom Brain, The Killer Shrews, the majority of the output of Mr. Edward Davis Wood Jr. Uh, so Ed Wood was a notorious bad movie maker, right? But he was also incredibly industrious, producing and directing the vast majority of his output through charisma, gumption, and a complete lack of self-awareness. <laughs> uh, he raised his own budgets through financial backers and associates for his most prolific period, and despite the lack of quality of his films, he had a pretty industrious output. And looking back at the 50s, it's hard to say that his films were that much worse than the other films of the era, even though at the time he wasn't really that recognized. So falling into that category of DIY filmmaking in an era of low-budget schlock is the hideous sun demon. Definitely superior to Ed Wood's films, uh, but still in the same category, this ridiculous piece of fluff was produced by, written by, directed by, and starring a dude named Robert Clark, who had gone from mostly uncredited parts as a contract player in the 40s to being somewhat of a journeyman actor by the 50s, including a string of leading roles and some successful films. So one of his recent successes by 1958 was a movie called The Astounding She-Monster. Yeah, it's as good as it sounds, from 1957. And when he saw the production level and cost versus the return financially, he set out to make his own low-budget sci-fi horror flick with a ridiculous pot-boiled name. So he rounded up a bunch of USC film students and pretty much all his family and friends and went out on weekends filming in L.A. and the surrounding areas. He rented his equipment, but only paid one day's worth of fees for two days of shooting because of the fact that he was renting on the weekends. It was one of, if not the first movie, largely for the budget purposes, but it, to, to use practical locations for filming. And most of the movie has that lived-in, run-and-gun style of filmmaking that is somewhat incongruous for the era. The bar and apartments and other places that they go in the movie, they feel more lived in and realistic than a set, even though they're lit like shit and the decorations are painfully of the era. But as an Angelino myself, it's really cool to see the shots of the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, Leo Carrillo Park, Glendale Hill, the North Downtown Union Station oil fields. They all feature in the outdoor scenes in Hideous Sun Demon, including a bunch of places that shockingly have not changed much in the 80 years since the filming. Uh, I tried to find out which bar they used to film in Santa Monica, but I can't find any evidence of which one they used or if it's still there because I would have loved to have visited it. It looked fun. Uh, so Clark pulled strings and favors to get a lot of this film done, and his industriousness paid off. The movie wasn't a huge hit, but it did make its money back and then some on a double bill with Roger Corman's Attack of the Crab Monsters and ultimately went on to become a cult film 
hit of the era, including, as I said earlier, being parodied brilliantly on riff tracks. Uh, it was mocked by Elvira and even redubbed twice. Once as a comedy by Hadi Salome and Greg Brown, and also by Clark's own son, Cam, along with Jay Leno and a few other new actors. So this $10,000 gamble, which was the original budget that then ballooned during filming to a $50,000 gamble, it paid off. Although it didn't really secure Clark any new acting gigs, nor any of the other actors, and in fact, Clark never directed again either. But the movie is, as bad as it is, and it is bad, it's surprisingly unique, and it has some unusual takes on a lot of the storytelling tropes of the day. Now, obviously, there's nothing too amazing about the plot. It's essentially a reverse werewolf story about an anti-hero sort of scientist who gets exposed to radiation and then afterwards becomes a raging lizard monster when exposed to sunlight. Um, a, a brief aside, I always laugh at the innocence of 50s movies and their depictions of radiation poisoning. Um, the, the dude is supposedly exposed to intense, unique radiation particles for five minutes and is totally fine aside from, you know, the whole hideous sun demon thing. Whereas by this point in history, science knew pretty well what radiation exposure would actually do to your body, thanks to 14 years of research on atomic bombs. I mean, actually, it reminds me in some ways of the Demon Corps incidents at Alamogordo in 1945 and 1946, where a sphere of pure plutonium gallium was accidentally allowed to go supercritical for a fraction of a second. And just that amount of exposure was enough to kill the men closest to the incident. who They received up to a thousand rads in half a second, over a thousand times what an average human receives in one year of radiation. Uh, and they received it in neutron radiation. And then I think a fraction of that in gamma radiation as well. But luckily, our boy, the hideous sun demon, he got that sweet, incredible Hulk radiation or something because he's totally fine after sitting in a five-minute radiation bath. And we find out pretty quickly that he's also a drunk, a womanizer, and just a salty, selfish fuck. <laughs> and that's the most interesting part of Hideous Sun Demon. Clark's scientist, Gil McKenna, is a bit of a dick. Although you see that he is well-liked by his friends and respected by his colleagues, but he's presented as a full character, warts and all. Not cleverly or, or well, but they do present him as not just a piece of cardboard. And the movie's frank depiction of sex and addiction is extremely unusual for a schlock film of this caliber. The movie itself could be taken as a metaphor for alcoholism, as a matter of fact. Although, to say that it does so in any kind of meaningful way would be one hell of a stretch. It is schlock and explo exploitation first, from the buxom and highly sexualized bar performer who Gil has a fling with, to her thug mobster boyfriend, who Gil gets into it with, to the corny-as-fuck scientists and the god-awful action scenes, if you can call them that. Um, as you'd expect, the rubber suit sun demon itself is pretty damn goofy. Although, for the time, it's not that bad, relatively. Lord knows we've seen worse, but it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, the sex and violence is more matter-of-fact than you'd expect from a film that you'd think would go for shock value. And there's no 
moralizing or counterpointing the, the drink or the promiscuity, the, the drinking or the promiscuity. It's, it's taken in stride by all the secondary characters uh, and, and contextually in the movie. And for a movie that is exploitative, it's never gratuitous. Aside from the moment where the sun demon grabs a rat that happens by and just crushes it, crushes it in its hands just because he's there. F that rat. But look, Trudy, the bar girl he falls for, she's presented as being a woman fully aware of her own sexual nature and she doesn't apologize for it or shrink from it. She isn't made out to feel guilty for liking men. Uh, nor does the film condemn her character for being sexual. In fact, Gil is made out to be the bad guy in their relationship because he doesn't treat her as well as she deserves. And even the seedy associates she hangs out with aren't made out to be evil per se. They're just rough and jealous of Gil with good reason. So look, overall, yes, I feel like I'm, I'm defending Hideous Sun Demon a lot, which is funny because, <clears throat> let me restate, it is a fucking terrible movie. But so were many of the low-budget B-to-Z-grade films of this era. And at the end of the day, Hideous Sun Demon is far from the worst of them. Um, despite some really campy and over-the-top acting from Clark himself, his character of Gil is one of the more interesting and nuanced main characters I've seen in one of these films. And I like that they weren't afraid to make him unlikable, flawed, and very human, despite also being a hideous sun demon. Uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate the lack of moralizing. I appreciate the gumption and creativity and pure love of filmmaking that it must have taken to will this movie into existence. Quality and talent aside, I know that, and I know, I, I, look, one of my themes this year is punk rock. And although, yes, it is a stretch and a half to say that hideous sun demon is punk rock. Um, there's that DIY attitude again all over this movie. Uh, that will to put out some sort of product to create something, no matter how difficult or what the challenges are or how cheap or obviously unpolished the end result may be. And in its own way, Hideous Sun Demon, like Truth or Dare, is punk rock. Before punk rock, it's rebellious against social norms and even B-movie conventions. I mean, it's not some sort of high art. Neither of them are. It's, it's laughable to even say that. But it is something created out of a passion that someone had for creating. And they stopped at nothing to make it. And there's an authenticity and an integrity to that. And even though Truth or Dare or Hideous Sun Demon might not be exactly the most punk rock movies you've ever seen, there's something certainly to be said for a movie that does what the fuck it wants when it wants to, and that did it in spite of significant obstacles to its own creation. And that, to me, I gotta say, is pretty punk rock. So, <laughs> coming up, uh, number 13. Uh, <laughs> now that I've stretched all bounds of reason and logic by saying that Hideous Sun Demon is fucking punk rock... Uh, okay, let's talk about a movie that, unlike most of the movies I've seen this year that are goofy or campy by accident, this movie is unrepentantly, intentionally insane. The Abominable Dr. Fives from 1971. It is streaming or rentable nowhere. You got to get that sweet Blu-ray set, the uh, Vincent Price Collection Part 1. It is 
the, all three of the Vincent Price collections are well worth your dollar if you're a person who likes physical media. It's just the, the best of Vincent Price. And they knew that this is one of his best ones. They put it on the first set. It is one of, it's a stone cold classic. It's one of Vincent Price's most well-known and best movies. And as I said, it is completely intentionally, wonderfully bug fuck crazy on every level at every turn. This isn't serious scene chewing Vinnie Price from Conqueror Worm or House of Usher. This isn't Dower Vincent from Last Man on Earth. This is High camp having the time of his life, Vincent fucking Price, in one of the weirdest movies he ever made. And he made some weird ones. Uh, just describing the plot gives you an idea of what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> Dr. Anton Fives is a concert organist and a, a very in demand one, apparently. He's also an artist, an inventor, and he holds doctorates in music and theology, and we assume medicine? Uh, in other words, he's a genius. He's also dead, or at the very least, he says he's dead, and he certainly looks dead under his Vincent Price skin mask. Yes, I said that right. Which means that he never speaks normally in this movie. Fibes, Vincent Price as Fibes, never moves his mouth because his face is a mask. Instead, he's putting a stethoscope to his neck which allows him to speak in a way thanks to his quote-unquote knowledge of acoustics and which Vincent plays all this through his overexpressive eyes and then moving his throat as though it's making sounds. He never opens his mouth once in this film and they cover his face in a plasticky sheen of makeup to seem like his real face is actually a rubber mask that he wears to cover his hideous face underneath because you see, Fives was in a car accident in Switzerland and he was burned to a crisp in the crash, but he was racing home because he was coming to the aid of his dear wife, Victoria, who was undergoing emergency surgery. Victoria, however, died on the operating table and her surgery team later on begins to be picked off one by one by the vengeful and very creative and very much not dead Dr. Fives. And by being picked off, I mean that they are killed one by one according to the ten plagues visited upon the ancient pharaohs by the Hebrew god who demanded his people's release from servitude to the Egyptians. You know the plagues I'm talking about. Frogs, rivers of blood, locusts, etc., etc. Well, Dr. Fives can't just kill these people like a normal vengeful killer. Oh no, he kills them with constricting masks catapulting unicorn statues and an honest to God ice machine. Uh, so helping him in his nefarious uh, plot, I'll call it that, is his stunning, uh, she's stunning, but blank-faced assistant, Volnavia. Yes, uh, <clears throat> Volnavia. I did not misspeak that. Uh, she either lures in his prey with her beauty or she otherwise helps him accomplish his diabolical misdeeds. All of this is done from his secret lair. 
Yes, he has a lair in the most over-the-top garish art deco cathedral of an evil scientist lair that you can imagine, where he keeps wax faces of his victims, which he burns with a blowtorch after every one that he murders. And he plays grand extravagant organ symphonies to no one while accompanied by his clockwork robot orchestra, and he keeps loving tragic shrines to his lost wife, who looks a whole lot like stunning British actress and swimsuit model Carolyn Monroe. Probably because that's exactly who it is. So he's being pursued in this movie by the bungling London police, headed up by Inspector Harry Trout, played by Peter Jeffrey, a long way from the fascistic headmaster of Lindsay Anderson's If. Um, the So the cops in The Abominable Dr. Fives are the clearest indication, after all that I've just said, you, you must know, this is all very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the cops are comically ridiculous. They're more like Keystone cops than Sherlock Holmes. And Trout being called by a different name by everyone he meets based on different kinds of fish is a funny running gag. Um, one of Fives' primary targets is Dr. Vesalius, the main surgeon on his wife's procedure. And he's played by none other than legendary actor Joseph Cotton, whose resume reads like a history of film and theater, including a long association with Orson Welles and a commendation once upon a time that said that he was the greatest actor of all time to never have been nominated for an Academy Award. He's in here. He's the straight man, which is ironic given that his career started in comedy, but he's just great at anchoring all of this madness, uh, and Vincent Price is great in orchestrating it. I mean, there's really... There's not really much more I can say about Dr. Fives after all of that, other than just go fucking see it. <laughs> it's, it is Grand Guignol with a gigantic wink. It's an insane amount of fun that you never have to take seriously. It's visually sumptuous with some incredible set design and absolutely bonkers costumes and makeup. And it even has some early Saw-like death traps for the more sadistic amongst you. But it's also wildly, wonderfully unserious. And I can see people who don't have any patience for silliness or who are not in harmony with this kind of humor. I can see you guys being bored or annoyed by this movie's extremely high level of high camp. Uh, why does Fives kill people according to biblical plagues? How did he survive the car crash and create his new face and his amazing lair why does Volnavia hang out with him? Why does 1921 look like 1970 with an Art Deco stamp on top of it? Who the fuck cares? Just go along with it and enjoy if you can. It's macabre, gleeful, ridiculous fun. And it's also Vincent Price at his best, even if he never once opens his mouth. And finally, this week, we have Talk To Me an Australian film from last year, which released this year in the States and blew the fuck up. It was one of the biggest horror successes of this year, even surpassing Hereditary to become A24's biggest horror release of all time. I mean, just the name A24 should let you know that this movie has pedigree. A A24 has some sort of magic touch when it comes to horror movies specifically and films in general. And it's really no surprise that they're finally starting to get acclaim for their movies, including 
the massive win for Everything Everywhere All at Once at the Oscars earlier this year, which is probably the first time in a long while my favorite movie of a given year actually fucking gets recognized by the Academy. That was cool. But Talk to Me is definitely neither Oscar bait nor is it a deeply felt family movie. Uh, What it is is a wonderfully solid supernatural horror movie that takes some familiar ideas, frames them a bit differently, and instead of going for the more base, blumhouse style modern scares, sticks to ratcheting up tension, creating memorable moments and unpredictable twists, and ultimately sticks the landing with a finale that doesn't feel undeserved or forced and leaves the franchise open to a lot of very interesting possibilities for sequels, prequels, and the like. Talk to me is a, it's a pretty simple setup and it's one we've seen a lot before. There's a cursed object, in this case, a sort of mysterious embalmed hand, which may or may not be from a psychic or medium, and a bunch of people dumb enough to fuck with said cursed object. And hilarity ensues. Well, no, there's actually, there's, uh, excuse me, there's not a lot of hilarity in Talk To Me, aside from some nice slice of life, you know, in the, in the moment moments. It gets pretty serious pretty quickly when we're introduced to troubled main character Mia, who is still reeling from her mother's apparent suicide a couple years before the start of the film. Her fractured relationship with her dad and her group of sort of friends who both think she's weird and clingy and also treat her like a hanger-on because they don't know how to deal with or relate to her trauma. And if there's one thing I really dug about Talk To Me, it's the way the kids relate to each other, or rather, the way they don't. All of their relationships are complex, multi-layered, and not easily predicted. And there's a very real way that they deal with each other, where being friends isn't always being friendly. And sometimes you hang out with people just because you know them, not because you necessarily like them or care about them or, or know them intimately. And there's an ongoing theme in the film of the gulf between knowing someone and truly caring about them, letting them inside you. And it's, it's juxtaposed with the way the hand works. Hold the hand and say, talk to me, and you'll see a ghost. Say, I let you in, and the ghost possesses you. But make sure you break the connection before 90 seconds is up, or the ghost stays with you. And the kids in the movie get a thrill from being possessed like this. It becomes like a high school game. It becomes kind of a a meme phenomenon in their community, where no one's sure if it's real or not, but they all want to try. They, they, They film it, and it becomes like an online sensation for them. There's an irony to the fact that they're getting off on being entered and controlled by another entity, given how little they seem to want to really connect with the other living people around them, the living ones. We we see from the movie's opening sequence how little regard the gathering of kids at a house party really have for each other's existence. They don't all know each other's name. They don't really care if someone's going through a hard time. And seeing characters that truly care for each other, like Mia and her supposed best friend Jade's younger brother Riley, or Jade and Riley's mother Sue, played with terrifyingly intense mother bear energy by Miranda Otto from Lord of the Rings, and the way she feels about her kids, um, it seems to be outliers. But even Sue doesn't seem to know her kids, like really know them. She thinks she does, 
but she often makes wild assumptions and accusations and she oversteps boundaries because she interacts with her ideas of who they are. Of, of her ideas of who they are, not who they actually are, if you know what I mean. And, and that search for connection, the true intimate knowledge of others around us, being empathetic to them, letting their troubles into us, understanding them, that's the thing these kids can't do. They're gruff or insulting with each other. They're standoffish. They don't want to communicate about the problems they're experiencing even before the hand comes into the equation. They don't want to know about other people's problems. And there's a lot of scenes of them being on the phone or a computer, not engaging with each other, even if one of them is searching for attention. It's illustrative of a truly modern concern, that of our technology creating holes in our social fabric and the breakdown of the experience of truly getting to know another person, not just their avatar or online persona or, or seeing, for example, an image of them being possessed by a malevolent entity on one's cell phone. Um, Talk to me definitely goes into pretty standard horror territory for most of its second half, but it never really stumbles aside from a couple of minor plot holes and leaps in logic, but it's nothing to complain about really, especially when it does so much right. And some of the scares are truly skin crawling and the performances from top to bottom are solid as fuck with particular shout out to Sophie Wilde who plays Mia and Joe Bird who plays Riley and who is just incredibly present and vulnerable given his age and experience. Um, Wilde, on the other hand, is a, she's a fucking movie star and do not be surprised if you start seeing her in a lot more projects going forward, especially if she can handle doing accents, American accents, English accents, etc. She is riveting the entire movie, and she is difficult to take your eyes off of. And I can't think of a single moment in the movie she gave anything close to a false note in her performance. She plays a walking raw nerve and a girl on the edge from the get-go, and she never once overdoes it or lets us forget who she really is. It is one of my favorite horror girl performances in recent memory, and it's almost worth the price of admission just to watch her work. But then again, Talk To Me has a lot going for it. And it's kind of surprising, given its pedigree. The two directors, uh, who are brothers, they're Danny and Michael Philippou, started as backyard wrestling videographers and at 13 and 14, respectively, moved into creating YouTube content as an incredibly Australian-sounding group, Raka Raka, including they did parodies, fake fail videos, and they even moved into a giant house with a bunch of their friends to do a vlog series that then honed their filmmaking and special effects skills. Um, They also worked as a crew on now legendary South Australian movie, The Babadook. And Babadook's producer, Samantha Jennings, worked with them on that film and guided Talk To Me into existence. But really, that was all their experience before this. It's something, but it isn't a full-length movie. But the energy of a group of kids filming YouTube content or online content fills Talk To Me and the filmmaker's knowledge of how groups of kids work, for better or for worse, infuses a good chunk of the set piece moments of the film. But again, this is the brothers' first major film and you would never know it by their control of pacing, timing, mood, atmosphere, editing, et cetera, et cetera. They do so very little wrong here. And the nitpicks I have or that I've seen since I saw the movie are so minor really as to not 
matter in the grind in the grand scheme. It's just an arguably a well-made movie and one that has the potential to stick with you after it's done, even if you know where it's going long before it gets there. If you don't like this movie, it is purely a matter of taste, not a matter of anything to do with the film itself, in my, in my opinion. Um, and, and on top of that, you add in the surprisingly effective meditation on depression, trauma, and social alienation, and you just... For me, you have a movie that ranks as one of the top horror films that I've seen this year. I like it more and more the longer I think about it. And the quibbles that I had right after I watched it just seem less and less relevant. This is the kind of horror movie I'd like to see more of. Thoughtful and well-made, but with an energy and youthful edge that makes it feel like the kind of blockbuster horror cinema that sadly seems to dominate a lot these days, but without the sanitized, unexciting sheen of corporate-approved products that often ruin even the best intentions of those kinds of movies. In other words, definitely check out Talk To Me and definitely keep an eye out for what the Philippou brothers get up to next, which right now looks like it will be a sequel to Talk To Me, as well as a prequel dealing with the social media aspects of The Hand preceding the events of this movie. So good stuff. Go check out Talk To Me. It's wonderful. And that is the end of the second week of horror movies in the sixth season of Horrorpalooza 2023 edition. Hey, I somehow made a connection from punk rock to the hideous sun demon. DIY, baby. I did it to truth or dare. Uh, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I got to say, even though... A truth or dare, a critical madness. I'm trying to say it's punk rock. You know what? It's kind of like Gigi Allen. Yes, it's terrible. I think Gigi was intentionally terrible. But you know what? It's still... It <laughs> he wanted to be hated. Truth or dare can be hated. Let's, just, let's go with that. Well, I, I, I'm stretching myself trying to make the punk rock connection. Just bear with me here. Uh, so we did some punk rock horror movies, kind of. We did a whole bunch. Of, we did... Uh, 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 let's see, I was able to spread out the decades. I saw films from the 50s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, and the 2020s. I got a lot of decades in this week. Uh, I finally started working on my foreign language films. I got Uzumaki in there. Uh, I even got some good old Vincent Price, as I do every year. It's, it's just not a year. It just is not a year, ladies and gentlemen, without Big Zaddy V in there. And yes, I'm, I'm going to go perform an exorcism on myself for just saying that. I'm so sorry. All right, so please come back and join me here next week when I talk about movies number 15 to 21 on my marathon list. As always, please check me out, Sir Ian Dangerous, on Instagram. Share this show with everyone you know. Come back and check me out next week. I promise it's going to be a good one. I've already watched a couple of the movies, and they're looking good. Uh, but as always, thank you so much for joining me right here on...